I think it's safe to say that we all have times in life when our stress levels get elevated and we struggle with anxiety and fear. Life is often tough, and it's hard not to worry and be anxious about things. Sometimes those stresses can overwhelm us, and the resulting panic attacks and anxiety disorders are very real, and we may need help knowing how to respond. Well, in this episode of the Discover the Word podcast, the group's going to look at a psalm together, one that group member Bill Crowder calls a song of a fearful heart. We'll explore the psalmist's situation and what may have been causing his fear and anxiety. And then we'll reflect together on how this psalm can help us turn the fear that we experience in the face of life's uncertainties into faith in the face of life's stressful situations. So pull a chair up to the table for a study of Psalm 59, a song of a fearful heart on Discover the Word. And welcome to Discover the Word, the small group Bible study from Our Daily Bread Ministries, where we invite you to walk with us through topics and passages that inform the way we read the scriptures, challenge us as we live our lives as followers of Christ, and always point us to discover Jesus in the pages of the Bible. And in this edition, Bill Crowder will be leading the study with Elisa Morgan, Marty Hahn, and Daniel Ryan Day of a psalm that can be difficult to read in a lot of ways. Psalm 59 is what is called an imprecatory psalm, and Bill will explain what that means in a moment. It raises some real questions about how we're to understand it. But I do know that fear and anxiety is no less of a problem we struggle with than it was for the writer of this psalm. And so I think we'll find this a helpful time as we explore it together. So let's get started. And where Bill wants to begin is by spending some time talking about what fear and anxiety are and identifying some spaces in our own lives where we might be feeling those emotions right now. So, Bill. Okay, what's the difference between fear and anxiety? I know they're related, but there are some differences from what I've read. So think through that a little bit. What's the difference between fear and anxiety? They do overlap, don't they? Mm-hmm. Well, I'm a psychology major, so I <laughs> hate to go straight to the <laughs> definition I learned, but what I learned is that fear is about something known and anxiety is about something unknown. You're just not sure. So fear is specific and anxiety is vague. Well, that's what I've been reading as I've been looking into this. Um, Daniel, did you have any thoughts on it? Well, I was just thinking experientially, fear tends to be something that I've seen or been made aware of that I'm scared of. And anxiety is often, sometimes from experience of bad experiences, but is often like a fear of an unknown or Mm. anxious about what could happen or Mm. a deep awareness of my lack of control over what I want to happen. So those are kind of how I experience it differently. Yeah, and anxiety is probably a little bit more attached to worry, you mm-hmm. know, than fear is like, yikes, you know, it's it's just more immediate. Yeah. So if you're walking down the sidewalk in the street and a, and a street dog comes up to you and you're a little bit anxious about reaching out and touching it, that could be anxiety. But if it jumps at you, you take off and that's fear. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, because one is tangible yeah. and the other is yeah. possible, Yeah. if that makes any sense. I think... When we think about things like fear and anxiety, we're really getting kind of to the nuts and bolts of our humanity. These are things that all of us experience. These are things that are common to human nature. And yet there are things that the Bible has some things to talk to us about. The Bible has a lot to say about both fear and anxiety. And we want to spend our conversations this time looking at a psalm that David wrote when I think he was experiencing some fear and some anxiety, some fear over some actual literal threats that he was facing mm-hmm. and some anxiety about what the outcomes of those threats might be. Mm-hmm. So we're going to look this time around at Psalm 59. And as we get into it, we're kind of stepping into a different sort of space in the Psalms. A lot of the Psalms that we've studied in the past are either wisdom Psalms or their psalms of praise and worship, or lament psalms even. Psalm 59, a lot of commentaries categorize it as an imprecatory psalm. 
Now, an imprecatory psalm is where the psalmist is calling down curses on someone. And we'll see that as it happens. And David is the psalmist, and we'll hear his maybe fearful, maybe anxious, maybe just angry words as he asks God to curse his enemies. And we'll see that this kind of gets us into the ugly side of human nature that we'd rather not think about. But it's good to know that even Bible heroes battled with some of these things too, isn't it? So yeah. Let's look at Psalm 59, and for our conversation this first time around, I'd like for us to just kind of focus on the superscription. Not all psalms have a superscription. The ones that do, sometimes it's only a statement of authorship or maybe a musical note, but occasionally, and this is one of those, we get a little bit of a historical footnote as to what prompted, in this case, David, the author, to write this song or psalm or prayer. So Daniel, could you read for us the superscription? Sure. And and it was interesting too. I noticed that in the Hebrew Bible, this is actually the first verse. So it's not just above it, which is interesting too. It says, For the choir director set to Al-Tashech, a miktam of David, when Saul sent men and they watched the house in order to kill him. Okay, so this goes way back to 1 Samuel 19. 1 Samuel 17 is David and Goliath. And if you'll remember, when David asked, what will be done for the man who defeats this Philistine? They said, you're going to get this, and you're going to get this, and you're going to get the king's daughter to be your wife. Well, Michal, or Michael, as it's often pronounced in the West, was the daughter of Saul that David ended up marrying And they are in the house together in 1 Samuel 19. And King Saul, who is already feeling David as a threat to the throne, sends men to watch the house so that when he comes out, they can kill him. And he ends up sneaking out through an upper window with his wife's help. I mean, you can hear the fear and anxiety just in those kind of experiences that he was going through. There are men there who are literally there to kill him, and he doesn't know how it's going to turn out, and he has to figure out this creative way to escape with his wife's help. And and it's just a, a scary time for him. And we don't know if this was written immediately after or if it was written years later as he reflected on his emotions during that time. There are commentaries that kind of go both directions on it. Do you think it makes any difference? Probably not. I I always bump on why in the world is Saul such a goofball here? Oh my goodness, you know. I get stuck in the the human competition is what it feels like. So Mm -hmm. in rereading 1 Samuel 18 and 19 and seeing how successful David was and how handsome he was and how anointed he seemed to be, then you can start to see how paranoid Saul was becoming. And obviously it says several times that an evil spirit was coming into him. Obviously he was not well. So whether it was written that moment or later, looking back, it contains or it references those very Mm. deep, real human responses. It's ironic, isn't it? We're talking about fear and anxiety. And yet clearly Saul was beside himself. He was scared to death of David and probably Mm -hmm. anxious about what would happen if he didn't take David out. Yep, losing his power. Yeah. Yeah, fear and anxiety on Saul's part ends up producing fear and anxiety on David's part. Yeah. Good. That's how it works often, isn't it? (laughs) That our fear and anxiety affects others too. Yeah. Yeah. But I'm also thinking too of just the fact that this has been collected and passed down for generations And so, you know, to your point, Bill, I don't know that it matters too much because there's also this invitation to experience these words as a prayer or as a song as well. And so regardless of what the immediate circumstance was for the writing of the psalm, there's something that resonates deeply with the human experience in this psalm that Mm -hmm. we're invited to experience again. Yeah, that's really good, Daniel. I think one of the important things, especially when we look at one of these psalms that's not one of the beautiful psalms in a sense, not one of the worship psalms, things like that, it's important to remember the nature of the psalms, that the psalms are there to describe someone's emotions at a moment in time in a specific circumstance. It doesn't mean God approves of or condones those emotions. It just means this was a real human response to a real human experience. 
And I think keeping that kind of framework for how the Psalms operate is really valuable and helpful. Another thing about the superscription, in addition to the historical footnote, is that it's to the tune, do not destroy. That's what Al-Tasheth translates to, do not destroy. This is the third consecutive psalm that's put to that tune. Now, one commentator said that it was obviously just a very popular tune of the day, so it was used a lot. Others see it more as a connection to later in the psalm where David asks God to protect him from his enemies. Don't let them destroy me, in other words. I don't know if you have any feelings one way or another, or again, does it really matter as to what that's for? Yeah, I was just trying to figure out how it fit into David's sphere. Mm -hmm. Do you see that? I mean, do not destroy. Yeah. I mean, part of the problem is that this is a musical tune that we don't have access to. I mean, maybe it's a tune that's in minor key Mm -hmm. because it's a very fear-tension-laden tune. Mm -hmm. And so it fits his emotions in this moment where he's asking God to not let himself be destroyed by his enemies. I think that there could be a very real connection there. And as a part of the superscription, it may not even be David that's saying, sing it to this. It could be as it's collected later, Hmm. they decide, because it says, this is a Psalm of David to be sung to this tune. And so it may even be a tune Uh, that came out later after David too. There may not be a tight relationship then, Yeah. right? Maybe. And isn't it ironic that in verse, I think it's maybe 13, David then asks for God to destroy his enemies. So to the tune of do not destroy, destroy. It's very interesting. And again, I think all of those things kind of bubble together in kind of an emotional cocktail that David is pouring out in these words. The last element of the superscription is it's called a mictum of David. Now, we have no idea what that word means. (laughs) We don't know what a mictum is. But we know that it's found (laughs) in the headings of Psalm 16 and Psalms 56 through 60 in the Hebrew Bible. And all six of those Psalms are associated with David. So whatever a mictum is, it seems to have a unique connection to David. Well, that helps a lot, Bill. That really helps. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, you're welcome. Uh, What can I say? Well, I wonder, too, you referenced that several psalms are called that, yet we don't know what the word means. Are those psalms all similar in theme or in content or in subject matter? Well, if you look at 56, my Bible says it's a supplication for deliverance and Hmm. grateful trust, 57. It's a prayer for rescue from persecutors, 58. It's a prayer for the punishment of the wicked. So it does seem like thematically Mm -hmm. these psalms that it's in the midst of are all psalms out of trouble, at the hands of people, asking for God's rescue mm-hmm. and judgment, by the way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As we get into the psalm, we're going to divide it into four parts because, again, scholars disagree on how to read the structure of the psalm. Some see it as parallelism. Some see it as a chiasm, which we've talked about before. But it seems to me that as we look at this, it's got four stanzas, and they alternate between David's fear and his faith. He'll talk about his fear of what these enemies might do to him. And then almost in a bipolar way, he'll switch to these strong statements about faith in God. And then it's right back to the fear again. And then he ends on a statement of faith, which again, feels very human and normal to me. I don't know about you guys. Yeah. Sounds like our experience. Yeah. Yeah. So as we look at this imprecatory Psalm in these conversations, I think it is important to remember, as we mentioned earlier, that even though we have an inspired account of this psalm and David's emotions in this time of trial, that doesn't necessarily mean that God endorses those emotions or those feelings of wanting judgment and trial and struggle poured out on these people. In fact, the words of Jesus tell us a very different way to approach those who are enemies. Elisa, would you read for us Matthew 5, verses 43 and 44? Sure. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemies. Now, it's hard to find any of that in Psalm 59, as we're (laughs) going to find out as we go through this. But I think that's one of the reasons why it's helpful for us to get the right context for how to read the Psalms. Because as people who live on this side of the cross and the empty tomb, 
Jesus calls us to a higher ground. He calls us to a higher ground of loving our enemies, not calling down curses on them. And even though there may be times that we feel very strongly we would like to call down curses upon them, that doesn't really fit the heart of Jesus nearly as well as it did the heart of David. So Bill, you just said that we're hearing David call out for judgment on his enemies, and yet Jesus' take is to love our enemies. And you know, in current events, if you will, we're watching injustice around our world, just very, very troubling situations. And I actually have been thinking about imprecatory psalms, which is a tough word. I think it means, as you said, to call down judgment, as maybe God allowing us to hate what is evil. And we see a model of it in David hating enemies. And yet I really respect what you're saying too, is that Jesus is making a better way for us to respond to our enemies. But I think of our brothers and sisters of people all over the globe who are suffering from injustice. Is there a place to call down judgment? Well, I think what jumps out to me, Lisa, is you mentioned that Jesus is talking about an action toward enemies and kind of the way we approach them. And David, it seems like, is talking to God about how he feels about his enemies. So I do think there's probably an invitation here for us to be honest with God about what we really think about those who are causing injustice and pain in the world and trusting God to guide us how to walk in the way that Jesus did. But it's freeing to me to know that God can already see what's in my heart anyway, and maybe the hatred at times or the frustration or the anger that I'm experiencing toward others. And not only does he see that, but God invites us to share that with him, I think, through examples like this. But then how do we go from that to living differently? Mm -hmm. I think that's where maybe Jesus has to inform how we live. That's, That's what comes to mind for me. I just wonder, too, if in both cases... Something has to be done. You just sense that, Lord, help yeah. stop this person. And if you could be calling out for God's restraint, for God's action, for his intervention, without necessarily hating the guts of the other person. Mm-hmm. You know, it can be love that calls out for God to step in and to stop and to restrain a person who is mobilizing his soldiers to do terrible things. Yeah, The call can be, oh, God, stop them now, please. See, that's really helpful because I think there's a tendency for us when we follow Jesus to sugarcoat. And evil is so thick and ugly and stinky and real in our world. Mm -hmm. And our feelings, as you said, Daniel, are so raw and honest. So I appreciate this conversation to be able to bring the, the grist of our pain about what we're observing or what we're experiencing before God, and yet understand that love can motivate every response. Yeah, again, as we talked about in the first conversation, the Psalms are an inspired record of human emotions responding to life circumstances. And none of that's hidden from the Lord anyway, whether we verbalize it or not. He knows what's in our hearts. And I think like almost anything else that we do, for instance, we're asking God to judge or deal with a person or a situation or a group or whatever it might be. What is it that's motivating us? Is it because we want pain to stop for other people? Is it because we want them to be kind of arrested in their actions so that they can be corrected and shown a better way? Or is it because we just don't like them and we want to see them get theirs? I mean, I think motive is a big part of any conversation about how we interact with other people. And I think as we read David's words in Psalm 59, we have to read them through the filter of how we read them. But the words don't sound to me like they're really motivated by a great concern for David's enemies. It's more he's concerned about himself. Mm -hmm. And to me, that might make a difference in how we understand praying imprecatorily. Okay. Okay. Mm -hmm. So maybe kind of keep that floating in the background as we look at Psalm 59. And we're going to read verses 1 through 7. And I want you to listen not only to David's request for rescue, but for his request for God to curse or judge or punish 
these enemies of his. So let's just kind of read around the table if we could, Psalm 59, 1 through 7. Mark, you want to start us off? Okay, verse 1, rescue me from my enemies, O God. Protect me from those who have come to destroy me. Deliver me from those who do iniquity and save me from men of bloodshed. For behold, they have set an ambush for my life. Fierce men launch an attack against me, not for my transgression nor for my sin, O Lord. I've done nothing wrong, and yet they, they prepare to attack me. Wake up, see what is happening, and help me. You, O Lord, God of hosts, the God of Israel, awake to punish all the nations. Do not be gracious to any who are treacherous in iniquity. Selah. They return at evening. They howl like a dog and go around the city. Behold, they belch forth with their mouth. Swords are in their lips, for they say, who hears? So as we've read verses 1 through 7, this is the first of the fear portions, the fear stanzas in this psalm. And you can hear it in verses 1 and 2. Rescue me from my enemies. Set me securely on high. Rescue me from those who do iniquity. Save me from men of bloodshed. I mean, you can hear the fear in his voice, but then that fear seems to turn into something else as he starts calling on God to punish and judge and things like that. What about those statements in verses 3 through 5 stand out to you in his statement of imprecation or cursing? It's just so current. You know, when we look around our world and there's just injustice over people who, no guilt of mine, people run themselves against us, arouse yourself, help us. You know, just, it's amazing to me how current it is and what Hmm. we see in our world. Yeah. And I hear David saying like, I didn't do anything to tick Mm -hmm. them off. Mm -hmm. Right. Like I I didn't hurt them or harm them or cause pain for them or anything like they're coming out of nowhere just to attack me. And I didn't do anything to cause that. And we know that there are other times in David's life where he does a lot of things that maybe Mm -hmm. deserve to be attacked. But given the historical footnote that we saw in our first conversation, that this is Saul sending people to kill him just because Saul feels threatened by David's popularity. It really seems like there's some justification for his words. I haven't done anything to deserve this. Yeah. Yeah. And unless he's deluded, then I'm having a hard time, Bill, thinking that there's something of a cursing nature that's coming out of these mm-hmm. verses, at least. It seems to me that he's just, he's, he's scared to death. He needs mm-hmm. help. It, it seems like he could even theoretically have a concern for his enemies, but say, Lord, this is stop. This has got to stop. Even in the sense of ju- if it were to be judge them, it, it, make this right. Mm-hmm. Probably the part where yeah. it feels most like a curse to me is in verse five when he says, do not be gracious to them. Uh, do and not punish be gracious. Them. Yeah, awake to punish that's them. That's a shocking statement. Yeah, and, and that's where this tension, you know, of is that okay to pray? I mean, we have an example of a man of God praying for the righteousness of God to blot out the unrighteousness going on in our world. Can we pray that way too? If judgment means bring to light, make it right, then you can go a long ways with that without even Mm -hmm. sacrificing your concern and care for others. Now, Mm -hmm. I'm not saying, Bill, you know, that, that that's what's going on here entirely. But I think a lot of times we do misunderstand the word judgment and judge uh, until we get to the New Testament. Then all of a sudden we find Jesus talking about it, but he's got a, a whole different attitude about and an approach to make it right, mm-hmm. you know, correct the wrong for the sake of, of everybody. Yeah, and to me, I think that phrase, do not be gracious. In this psalm, David is going to ask God to be gracious to him, but he's wanting to withhold God's grace from other people. And that seems to be going too far. Yeah, you I know appreciate and, the positive characterization that you're trying to take on it, Mart, and I understand where that's coming from. But when he says withhold grace, I think maybe that's going too far. Oh, I, I agree with you. In fact, I wasn't even thinking of that verse. I was thinking of the first couple of them leading up sure. to that. I, I agree. I think it, it seems like he's crossed over a line. Something, you know, something has happened here. But if he's really afraid that maybe part of that is the fact that, God, if you show them any grace, they're going to just come after me again. Or, God, if you show them any grace, then that's just going to give them the space they need to actually get to me and hurt me, or something like that too. So, yeah, I don't I don't disagree at all, Bill, but at the same time, I'm like thinking, okay, mm-hmm. Lord, if you show them grace, that gives them space to get to me and hurt me in the way that they're trying to. 
Mm-hmm. I think this is when we really get into the kind of the gnarliness of it. Mm-hmm. Because there is a lot of stuff all kind of mixed together. And I think there are ways that we can read this that maybe aren't going to make it sound noble, but are going to make it sound less condemning. Yeah. And that may be the appropriate way to read it. But I don't know that any of us who have ever experienced grace accomplish anything good by asking God to withhold grace from someone else. And who needs it more than those who are our enemies? I think it makes sense to take a very realistic human approach to David's prayers. And as you said, the purpose of the Psalms is not necessarily to teach us everything right, but to express the human emotion that needs Mm -hmm. to be brought before God. And we talk a lot about motive earlier in the conversation. And the truth is we don't know what David's motive is in his heart for saying, don't be gracious to them. And oftentimes I think we do a disservice to people in the Bible when we try to give them motives without having clarity in that way, in the same way that we tend to do that to other people and assume that they're doing this because of this and that shows this or whatever. And, uh, and so in this, I think if nothing else, at least the good news for anyone who's in even the worst situation is you can come to God and honestly say what's going on and trust that mm-hmm. God's the one that can work through those motives anyway. That's good. Regardless of how we feel some of David's words should be characterized, I think the one thing that we can all agree on is that they are laced with fear and anxiety mm-hmm. where we started these conversations. Now we're going to turn to the next little stanza in which we're going to see his faith rise up in response to his fears. And that's where we're going to go next. All right, look forward to getting to that part of the psalm in the next segment. But we just finished a great reminder in the last part of the conversation about bringing our authentic emotions and even ugly reactions to God and letting him take it from there. And that can lead us to a place of faith. It's not automatic that that would happen, but it can. And that's what we'll discover as this episode goes on. So let me ask you something. Could you come up with a name if I asked you if you have any enemies? A coworker, a neighbor, someone in school? Seems like in middle school and high school, we all had those what we consider to be our mortal enemies. And sometimes it may be as silly as fans of a rival football team. Other times it's a serious thing. That impacts us in significant ways, emotionally and physically and spiritually. Well, the next part of this conversation brings in the enemy dimension to Psalm 59. And we'll get to that after a quick timeout. Well, as we study Psalm 59 together this week, did you know that Bill has done a lot of work in the Psalms with this group? And a while back, Daniel had a helpful multi-week series on how to read the Psalms. And you have access to all those studies when you go to our discovertheword.org website. Just go to the archive section and click on that archive dropdown and then scroll through all the studies that we have available there. If you've never been to that part of the site before, uh, you're going to be surprised at how much Bible study material you have easy and free access to. As I said, Bill has focused the group on a lot of the Psalms. For example, Psalm 18, a song of mature reflection. Psalm 131, a song of childlike faith. Psalm 71, the wisdom of years. Psalm 34, when crisis strikes. Psalm 107, God's rescue. And there are lots more. You'll find them as you scroll through the archive section of our discovertheword.org website. Click on that archive dropdown up at the top of the page. And now let's listen as Bill poses that question about having an enemy to the group. And I think you'll be interested to hear their responses. Have you ever had an enemy? And I don't mean somebody who didn't like you or somebody who's a bad neighbor. I mean a real enemy that you felt threatened by. I have. Mm. And believe it or not, it was the lady across the street from us. (laughs) Oh, man. (laughs) It went on for a long time. She just absolutely hated us. Oh. Kind of terrorized you, as I remember, didn't she? Yeah. She did. Specific reason, Mart? I mean, you're not exactly the type that makes enemies, so... You know, the best we could figure out is my wife used to help her quite a bit. And at some point, Di confronted the lady, I think gently, but in a way that the the lady just took off on us. And it Mm. just... But yeah, Bill, you're right. She used to threaten us. 
Mm. We never knew for sure mm. what, what she was capable of doing. Mm. So yeah. there was a lot of anxiety there yeah. and unpredictability. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the closest thing I can think of is in a church setting, as my family came into a new church setting, there was someone who decided that they felt like we were a threat to that community. I knew there was tension, but I didn't find out till later how this person would talk to others when we weren't around talking mm-hmm. about things like that. And so that's probably the closest thing I can think of where it was someone who really wanted us not to be around and was trying to f- actively f- figure out a way to make that happen. Mm-hmm. Ugh, it's painful. My example is um, a little bit more corporate in terms of when I worked for a specific nonprofit, there was another nonprofit that became enemies with us. And it really boiled down to each organization's mission statement of what we felt God was calling us to. And while we would support their mission statement, they couldn't support ours. It's kind of like being on different sides of a circle, not and everybody's fighting for the kingdom of God, but you don't realize that behind you on the other side, you know, it, it is still the kingdom of God. It felt like they were fighting against us. And it was really complicated and wounding and difficult mm-hmm. to understand. But, you know, it's like you think, well, my obedience to the mission God's given me means I have to oppose yours. And mm-hmm. not sure that's mm-hmm. always the case. Yeah. And I'm even struggling with the word enemy, Bill. Mm-hmm. And this might Good. be partly the way I've grown up or my personality or just not being honest about what I really feel (laughs) about others. It feels wrong to even put that label on someone else Mm. for me. Mm. So I think that's why I'm really struggling to answer the question because maybe there have been situations where I've had an enemy, but I don't feel it's right for me to put that label on those relationships or those people. Yeah, Yeah. that's that's honest. I think that's really good. Daniel, I'm feeling a little bit of that too, even in the example I gave. But the only thing, I guess, that reinforces the idea that she really was an enemy, she used to make calls around town to different churches and accuse me to them saying I was doing horrific things and that I needed to be driven out of town. You know, and maybe there's something right here in the grist of what we're talking about that we need to listen to. I totally agree that, you know, Jesus really encourages us to love our enemies and reinterprets the whole concept of enemies. The reality is that we can sugarcoat that and say, well, I'm not supposed to have an enemy, so I don't feel this way. But we do. You know, people wrong us. They hurt us. They wound us. They wound those that we love. And something righteous, if you will, rises up inside us to set things straight. We want to call out to God. So I think we're tempted to flush one or the other to do this black and white either or thinking when we're human and we live in a really messed up fallen world where people are going to hurt us. Now, Hmm. as we turn to Psalm 59, we're going to read verses 8 through 11. And we mentioned at the end of the last conversation that we saw strong evidence of David's fear. In this, we're going to see him turn more to his faith in verses 8 through 11. And I want you to keep in mind that verse 7 ended with the words, For they say, who hears? Almost as if, what's God going to do to us? What's God going to do about this? Mm -hmm. And I think that informs how this next stanza opens. So let's read verses 8 through 11 and keep that who hears in the back of your mind as we start to read. Alicia, you want to begin for us? You bet. Okay. But you, O Lord, laugh at them. You scoff at all the nations. You are my strength. I wait for you to rescue me. For you, O God, are my fortress. My God in his loving kindness will meet me. God will let me look triumphantly upon my foes. Do not slay them or my people will forget. Scatter them by your power and bring them down, O Lord, our shield. Okay, it's still got all that fear and anxiety in there, but now instead of focusing on his enemies, he seems to be more focused on God. Instead of being overwhelmed by the problem, he's turning to God, it seems, for solution. And I think that's an important turn that David makes. What I think is really interesting is that in our last conversation, we talked about David saying, don't be gracious to them. But then in Mm -hmm. verse 10, he says, my God in his loving kindness will meet me. Now, Mm -hmm. those two contrasting ideas about God's mercy and grace and kindness and love are wrapped up in that word loving kindness, which is the Hebrew word what, Daniel? Chesed. 
that faithful love of God. Yeah, so what he is wanting to deprive from them in an earlier statement, he wants for himself in verse 10, which does feel odd to want to deprive somebody else of God's grace while you claim it for yourself. Hmm. And yet we're seeing, and you're helping us see, Bill, how David almost pendulum swings between fear and faith, and then back to fear, and then back to faith. We're seeing his honest expression, and then remembering who God is. And and maybe that's some of what it is. You know, don't give them grace. Oh, but please give me grace. I just said that, you know, <laughs> kind of a thing. Um, you know, as he's listening to his own prayers. And, and isn't that also just this amazing human example of how praying to God changes us? You know, as we know God is hearing us, we are formed in the process. Yeah. Bill, you started with the setting. Saul is acting like a devil. I mean, he just he's out of his yeah. mind. He's being mm-hmm. driven by his own fears. He wants to eliminate David. I think the question is to be, what would have been good for Saul? I mean, in the best sense, mm-hmm. given his you know, his his wickedness at that point, what would have been good for him? Well, I don't think grace is ever bad for you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but something would have to happen yeah. to make him to be in a place to receive yeah, grace, right? That's true. Ooh. That's true. Yeah. We've also talked a lot about David's faith and him swinging toward faith. And I think sometimes when we picture faith of people like David in the Bible, we think of like this absolute confidence Mm -hmm. that God is going to deliver. But I also wonder too, since we don't know David's tone of voice (laughs) as he's saying this or writing Mm -hmm. this, like might it also have been, but you, O Lord, laugh at them. You scoff at all the nations, right? (laughs) Like I'm saying this because I know that this is the kind of God you are, but in this circumstance that I'm in right now, the best I can do is say it because I don't necessarily feel that Mm -hmm. confidence. And of course we don't know, but I'm curious if maybe some of David's strong faith that we're talking about was actually a like, right, God, Mm -hmm. you do this, right? This Mm -hmm. is the kind of God you are. Your your loving kindness, show it to me, right? I think that's a good caution, Daniel, because of all the characters in the Bible, David is the one who tends to be the most overly idealized And yet we know he had boatloads of problems. And so Mm -hmm. struggling with moments of faith certainly seems to have been one of those that he had problems with from time to time. I think that's a very, very good insight into how maybe, even though it seems like the pendulum has swung from fear to faith, that maybe even in that faith, He's not quite there. He's kind of still reaching for it out in the fog a little bit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that rings true. The other thing that I think is really interesting is in our last conversation, we saw him say, do not be gracious to them. In verse 10, he says, be gracious to me. But then he says in verse 11, don't kill them. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting how he qualifies that. Don't slay them or my people will forget. Why does he pair those two? Yeah, I think here he's asking God, in a sense, to be gracious to them, to not give them maybe what he was asking for a moment ago, but not necessarily for their sake, for the sake of other people who are watching this. And perhaps uh, he's thinking they're going to get the wrong idea about who you are, God. And I wonder too, if part of what could help us is the phrase scatter them by your power too. So if God doesn't wipe them out, but scatters them, And bring them down. Yeah. Yeah. Then people will see those enemies still around but without their power. And that is just as much a testament to God's rescue as it is him wiping them out or something instead. And so maybe that scatter them phrase helps us in that way a little bit. Yeah, so what are the lessons that David wants his people to not forget? Well, you know, obviously he doesn't give us that detail of what he's striving for from his own mind. But it seems to me as I read these, that when he says, don't slay them, but scatter them, he's wanting the people to see that there are consequences for wrong actions and wrong choices, but that at the end of the day, God is still a God of mercy and grace because that's who he is. Even though God does from time to time bring judgment uh, upon people for their actions and choices, that's not what he wants to do. Uh, In Ezekiel, we read, for I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, says the Lord, but that they would turn and live. That's God's heart for broken people, that they would turn and live. 
even though from time to time judgment has to happen, that doesn't mean that that's God's default position or that that's what he enjoys. So are you picking up, you think David sensed some of that? I think it's certainly possible because as he's reflected on his faith and you see it in, I will watch for you. Your loving kindness will meet me. God will let me look triumphantly. There's this anticipation of God intervening on his behalf but it's almost as if he puts brackets around it and says, but. But there's really a lot of possibilities yeah. here, aren't there? Yeah. And that's one of the things that makes this such an interesting psalm because there's almost nothing about this psalm that's absolutely clear cut except that David's really afraid. I mean, that's the yeah. one major certainty in this psalm. He's scared out of his mind. Okay, in our last conversation, we messed around with the word enemy a little bit. So I want to avoid that word, but I want to <laughs> ask you a question. Have you ever felt like you were unfairly attacked? And if so, how did you tend to view the person who was doing the attacking? Sounds like a job interview, Bill. <laughs> <laughs> or we're in a therapist office, maybe. <laughs> yes, I have felt okay. unfairly attacked and... How did I view that person? Um, I wanted them to be held accountable for being wrong. So I felt very defensive and felt like I needed to defend myself and explain myself or whatever, even if it wasn't something I needed to explain. And I was pretty angry at them. Mm -hmm. I'll go a little further and say... thought they were stupid. <laughs> I thought they were, they were ignorant. They yeah. were stuck in a spot of non-wisdom. They weren't listening to God. I could keep going here. <laughs> yeah. That all sounds very self-assuring. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I also felt a lot of pressure to like think about who else they might have been talking to about mm-hmm. me and who mm-hmm. else I needed to defend myself too. And not only did I need to defend myself, but I probably needed to discredit them in some way with those people so that they would trust me more than them. And mm. now we're getting into the ugly side, but yeah, mm-hmm. it's all ugly. I'm trying to land on one example. <laughs> Are we talking about marriage? Are we talking about being a parent? Are we talking about mm-hmm. the work? Mm-hmm. You know, I think mm-hmm. we're talking about life. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the one example that I think of most clearly was I'd been a pastor for about four years, and it was the first church that I pastored. And we were in a board meeting, and there was a gentleman on the board who was an older man. And I say older man, he was then probably the age I am now. So he was an older man, and he had bright white hair. And in the middle of the meeting, And I don't even remember what the issue was we were talking about. We were in a board meeting, and he was on the board, and I was there, and I just presented something. And he just became enraged, and he leaned across the table and shook his fist at me and said, Come on, you know you want to hit me. You know you want to hit me. His face turned beet red. And I thought he was going to come across the table and hit me. And in that moment, what I thought about him was that he had lost his mind. Mm-hmm. that there was nothing that was being discussed that deserved that level of emotional response. But that was probably the one time that I felt really threatened in a situation like that. You know, Bill, thanks for that example. You know, not too long ago, Evan and I had bought a new house and we went for an inspection and the prior owner was there and she started screaming at me to get out of her house and cursing at me. And I was so dumbfounded, and I'd forgotten about that till you shared your example, but that's the same conclusion I came to with her is, I think she's gone round the bend. You know, I think something's off inside of her being, because it was a response so kind of inappropriate to the situation. Yeah. Well, we're going to see part of David's response to those who he feels, and I think we've kind of agreed, are unfairly attacking him, or at least wanting to unfairly attack him. Uh, These are people who have been sent by King Saul to David's house. I mean, our home is supposed to be a place of refuge, but he certainly doesn't feel safe in his own house. And King Saul has sent these people to David's house to kill him. And with that reminder of the context, let's read verses 12 through 15. And again, we've been seeing this emotional pendulum swinging between fear and faith. And now it swings back to the fear side of it. Starting in verse 12, Daniel, would you begin for us? 
Yeah. On account of the sin of their mouth and the words of their lips, let them even be caught in their pride and on account of curses and lies which they utter. Destroy them in wrath. Destroy them that they may be no more, that men may know that God rules in Jacob to the ends of the earth. Selah. My enemies come out at night, snarling like vicious dogs as they prowl the streets. They scavenge for food, but go to sleep unsatisfied. Hmm. That's not exactly the most complimentary metaphor for him to use. The dogs that he's talking about, uh, often in the Bible, the dogs are scavenger dogs. They would kind of be like the way we would think of rats today. They're dangerous. They carry disease. They are a threat. And uh, so for him to describe his enemies in terms of the scavenging, disease-laden dogs is really harsh. What really strikes me, and I'd like to see if it strikes you the same way, is in our last conversation, David said, don't kill them. Now he says, Mm -hmm. destroy them. Destroy (laughs) them that they may be no more. Mm. How does that hit you? With the repetition, it hit me as strong. Just hearing it read, Mm -hmm. destroy them, destroy them. Having it repeated like that just really brings so much weight. To sung to the well. tune do not destroy <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's it's so back and forth and I, I go back to that pendulum swing again we were talking about that you know he's on the one hand going i can't stand these people and get rid of them and obliterate them to god you are loving kindness and you will make everything right to back to okay off with their heads and then back to yeah. <laughs> it's um it's very human it is and, and i identify with it. i just wonder how many times i've been beside myself. I I didn't even know my own heart, but I had all these conflicting emotions. And uh, it sounds like David was there. Mm -hmm. And is there any sense, Bill, in this of like what destroy means in this context? Because I'm thinking about the way you set up this conversation with being unfairly attacked or Mm -hmm. wronged. And oftentimes when we think of destroy, sometimes we think of it as like destroying a reputation or destroying Mm -hmm. someone's you know, character, or in this case, is he actually like saying, destroy them as in kill them and wipe them off the face of the earth? Like, what is any sense that you have as you've studied this more than us about what he means by destroy there? Yeah, the word destroy seems to have the idea of consume, to consume them, which is not an altogether attractive alternative to destroy, because it seems pretty all-consuming, if you will. It seems to me that as he's calling for God to destroy them, it's almost like a do to them what they want to do to me. Mm-hmm. The only way I can be safe is if you do to them what they're trying to do to me. And that's where, once again, I think we really see how powerful the fear is that's operating in David's mind. Yeah. And it's interesting, too, that that language of consume them or destroy them in wrath is connected with that they may know God rules in Jacob and the ends of the earth. So somehow in David's mind at this point, as he's saying, consume them in wrath, somehow he's seeing that as a connection with God deserving credit or praise. Yeah. And Daniel, that word consuming, Bill, that you're talking about, I just flashed immediately to our Lord as a consuming fire. And in that, we have the connotation of refinement, you know, Mm -hmm. of removing impurities. And that's super loving and beautiful, but I don't want to lay that on here because that may not be what David's talking about at all, but could be an element of hope that that God is really revealed further through destruction. That would be the best case, wouldn't it? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think even though we don't know exactly what David's thinking here, I think it's valuable to explore all the possibilities, the ones that put this in the best possible light and the ones that put it in the worst possible light, because Mm -hmm. all of those, if we are honest about our own hearts, all of those are in play. Right. True. Yeah. Yep. And especially with the reminder that this is David speaking to God. It's not God saying, this is what I want to happen. And so this is a very honest moment for David, regardless of what he means with that whole spectrum of potential meaning of hope all the way to the spectrum of just he's so angry or afraid or anxious that he's asking God to wipe them from the face of the earth. And maybe it's helpful to remember, again, what David was going through. He's been anointed to be the future king of Israel as a very young boy, and yet Saul is a little bit wackadoodle here. David, you know, has to flee through a window in his own home because Saul's out to kill him. How confusing is this? 
mm-hmm. that you're called out of a field where you're taking care of sheep, your, your head's anointed with oil by the, the leading prophet, the, the current king watches you, you kill a monster and Goliath, and then boom. He had to have been so confused and troubled and disappointed and frustrated. Yeah, it does. And if that's the case, then on one side, he could be calling out, even in his prayer, he could be he could be trying to manipulate God by appealing to his honor, you know, for your mm-hmm. sake, for your honor's sake. Yeah. I do think that, you know, when you think about how do we handle this, destroy them, and my thought that perhaps it's give them what they want to give me, there seems to be a little bit of that in verse 12. Let them be caught in their pride on -hmm. account of the curses and lies which they utter. There's a sense of give them what they deserve. They're trying to give me what I don't deserve. Mm -hmm. Yeah, back to your being wrongly accused example at the beginning of the conversation. Yeah, and I think David feels the weight, in a sense, the weight of innocence in this case. And that's part of what I think makes the emotion so vivid. I mean, if there was any sense of guilt and he's crying out to God for God to judge and condemn and curse and all these different things that he's been calling on God to do, don't you think that at some point, if there was any personal guilt in this situation, that that would rise up within him and kind of impact what he's saying some? Yeah. Well, you would think so. I mean, later in his life, we certainly see him doing that introspection and taking responsibility for his very real sins of murder and adultery and et cetera. So he's younger here, you know, perhaps that was a process, but we know that that's within his heart. So the question comes to my mind then. So what, if we're looking at all these possibilities, best case, worst case, what are we to take from this? What are we to learn from it? Yeah. And I think one of the things we can learn from it is that we are very complex creatures and God gets that. God understands Mm -hmm. that because he gives us this example of human complexity and the complexity of human emotions and the mood swings that it can create. I think it reminds us that God understands that we are but dust. And because Mm -hmm. of that, it makes his grace that much more amazing because he would stoop to give grace to people like us who oftentimes respond to situations in life exactly like this. Yeah, and that we can be fully honest with him with what's going on inside. I mean, even if that's the takeaway from every single one of these conversations, we need that reminder that many times that we can be fully honest with what we really feel and really think, that God is that friend, that safe friend as well that we can talk to when things are overwhelming and stressful and when we experience hatred for others, right? It's not always safe to talk about some of these things with other people, but our God is a safe God who invites us to say what we really think, even if it shows an ugly side of who we are. Yeah, God knows us and loves us. And while it's not always safe to talk about some of these things and feelings with other people, it is safe to talk about them with God. In fact, he invites us to. And often when we voice what we're feeling, he can bring perspective and help. Well, you're listening to Discover the Word, the small group Bible study from Our Daily Bread Ministries. And we have one part of the conversation left to go. So the group will wrap up this study of Psalm 59, a song of a fearful heart, after we look ahead to where we'll be going in our next study. On what's called the Great Seal of the United States, there is a scroll clenched in the beak of an eagle. And on that banner is the phrase, E Pluribus Unum, which means out of many, one. And next time on the Discover the Word podcast, we're going to explore how E Pluribus Unum could also be a motto over the church. It's a very powerful statement. And I want us to have that as the backdrop as we have these conversations. We're gonna look at the concept of one, and many, the concept of unity Mm -hmm. and diversity Mm -hmm. and how both of those are essential to the body of Christ. Mm. Ephesians 4 is the passage of scripture that is the foundation for the next two-part podcast on Discover the Word, One and Many. And now the conclusion of Psalm 59, a song of a fearful heart. I'm going to throw something at you, and I want you to respond. 
I heard somebody the other day say that we live in an age that is predominantly characterized by us versus them. Yeah, yeah, the polarities mm-hmm. are showing up everywhere, aren't they? Mm-hmm. And then there's just this kind of blah, gray zone of none, you know, just not taking any position out of, mm-hmm. out of fear of being known as us versus them. Yeah, and the social media is accentuating it, mm-hmm. world conditions, mm-hmm. conflict, mm-hmm. the politics of a nation. I do agree that sometimes, Elisa, it's out of fear, but I also think that for people like me, sometimes we get so confused True. With yeah. the language that we hear on both extremes that we're like, I don't know what's even true yeah. <laughs> or what to think about some situations, at least. Yeah, I think you're right, Daniel. I think sometimes if I'm honest, there's a part of me that wants to be part of the us because there's this little sense of superiority Mm-hmm. As opposed to them who are them. They're them. They're not us. <laughs> us, you know. By categorizing it as us versus them automatically makes us feel better about ourselves in some way. Mm. Yeah, and if I'm honest, I always see myself as the is on the end group as the one that is yeah, seeing things with the right perspective or whatever. And it usually is surprising to me when I find out that I am not seeing things mm-hmm. <laughs> correctly. Mm-hmm. So the Lord's still working on some humility there for me. Yeah, but in the middle of all of that, it seems like there are real struggles for control. I mean, yeah, the battle is real. Yeah, mm-hmm. no, I agree. And there are real issues that are being wrestled over and human consequences to those issues that are being wrestled over whether it's issues of justice or issues of morality or issues of legislation uh, or issues of war and peace. I mean, there are very real human consequences in all of these power struggles that the us versus them are engaged in. And the reason I wanted us to start this final conversation that way is because as we come to the last stanza, David's going to swing back to faith, but the bridge that connects him to the fears of the last stanza that we saw in our previous conversation is almost an us versus them kind of statement. In verse 16, he begins with the phrase, but as for me, now this is true of them, this is true of them, this is true of them, but as for me, you know, <laughs> it's like all it's of a almost, sudden, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's like I'm the good guy here. And in a sense, in this case, I think we can safely say that he probably is the good guy here. But we also know that that's not always the case with David. So, Elisa, why don't you start us off in verse 13, and let's hear the contrast between them in verses 13 through 15 and us, or in this case, David, in verses 16 and 17. that's, That's good. Okay. Verse 13, destroy them in wrath, destroy them that they may be no more, that men may know that God rules in Jacob to the ends of the earth, Selah. My enemies come out at night, snarling like vicious dogs as they prowl the streets. They scavenge for food, but go to sleep unsatisfied. But as for me, I shall sing of your strength. Yes, I shall joyfully sing of your loving kindness in the morning, for you have been my stronghold and a refuge in the day of my distress. O my strength, I will sing praises to you, for God is my stronghold the God who shows me loving kindness. I think it's really interesting, even in the point of contrast, that David's speaking in the future tense. He's not saying, I'm praising you right now. He said, I'm going to. Mm. Does that create any kind of a distinction for you? Where are you seeing that, Bill, specifically? Well, in all of verses 16 and 17, he says, I will sing. I will joyfully sing. I will sing praises to you. It's it's all set in future tense. Okay. Yeah. And I don't know if he means by that that God wants you to deliver me, I'll do it. Or if he's trying to convince himself right now that I'm going to still sing this way, even though the circumstances are still going on around me. Hmm. I guess what I hear, and I'm culminating all of our conversations, Bill, because these conversations have shaped me, is how much prayer, if you want to call this psalm a prayer, an imprecatory psalm, which is like a prayer asking for God to judge, how much these honest expressions and then these choices to believe and trust, how much that process forms us. 
Hmm. That's what's really hitting me. I mean, it's tempting to say, well, he's just put a bow on top of this mess. You know, well, I'm, but as for me, you know, I will trust God, you know, I'm doing it right. This is the right answer, you know, formulaic thinking. But if you see the process, which we've been unpacking in all these conversations of his honest, raw emotions, some of them really awful, and then his understanding of God's character and his need for God's loving kindness, you see all that, and it ends with the God who shows me loving kindness. It's like this psalm is a prayer that has shaped David. And when we allow honest expression the way David has and respond to how God responds to us, we too are shaped. So you're saying we have to say it. Once we say it, once we unload it and get it out, we may be in a better position to, to respond so to the Lord. Maybe we don't know what's inside us until yeah. we say it. Maybe we don't know. Yeah, that's really good. And, and Bill, going back to your kind of timeline question of I will sing, there's actually all three past, present, and future here, right? Because I shall mm-hmm. joyfully sing. For you have been, looking back, you have been my stronghold and a refuge. For you are my stronghold, the God who mm-hmm. shows me loving kindness. So you have like all three happening at once. And, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. maybe he's saying like, you know, regardless of what's going on, I'm still going to sing because I trust you. Why do I trust you? Because I remember how you've been my stronghold and my refuge in the past. Mm-hmm. And in fact, that brings me comfort now because you are my stronghold and show me love, which is interesting to see kind of all three of those mm-hmm. there. And once again, his kind of concluding crescendo to this song, it was once again focused on God's hesed, God's mm-hmm. faithful covenant love. Who God is becomes the most important thing about what he's singing. Because God is my stronghold, he is the God who shows me hesed, mm-hmm. which I think is really significant. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, I keep jumping forward to the New Testament where uh, mm-hmm. Paul writes, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. I don't think David necessarily had all of those thoughts lined up like Paul. But in even coming back to God and realizing that God is his strength, God's his provider, there's a way in which he is brought through that mm-hmm. spiritual battle to the very heart of God himself. And maybe that's where Lisa was describing is so helpful because sometimes it probably takes us getting all of our honesty and what we really think out of us and expressing it so that we can maybe hear from God and hear the heart of God or get back to the heart of God or however we want to say that. It seems to me that as we've kind of worked through this psalm, uh, I know this is a word that gets overused, but it's felt very much like a journey. Sometimes we land on a portion of scripture and it's kind of like, okay, that's it. That's there. That's great. That's what I need. This seems like David's kind of fumbling in the dark, looking for help, looking for hope, looking for answers, even as he swings between fear and faith. He's doing it in a hope-filled kind of way, even in the midst of all of his fear. And I think maybe the whole thing we're supposed to take away from this is that life is a process, and all of us are somewhere in the process along the way. None of us are where we're going to be, and none of us are where we used to be. But we're somewhere along the way in the process and that God fully and completely understands the process even better than we do. And he knows how he's going to get us to where he wants us to be, even as we struggle sometimes in the moments of where we are. And to me, just thinking about it in terms of this process that we see David struggling with helps a whole lot to think through when I face difficulties and trials and maybe people who attack or accuse me. Yeah, especially in this case, the person that's attacking and accusing him is his father-in-law. Yeah. And just, you know, sometimes for us, we talked about us versus them at the beginning of the conversation. For us, sometimes the most painful Mm. us versus them moments are in family situations where we see things differently. Mm -hmm. So just that extra anxiety and weight and fear and pain that David is experiencing as his father-in-law being the one that's trying to have him killed. God is there with him in that. And maybe there's some encouragement for us today as we end up in situations of us versus them with even family where it's a little extra painful that God's in process with us in those situations too, just like he was with David. Good reminder, we are in process and others are too. 
but landing at a place of faith, even though there may be struggles along the way in the process, is the best place to be. Good study, challenging study of Psalm 59 in this episode. Well, this is the Discover the Word podcast, and you've been studying alongside Mark DeHaan, Elisa Morgan, Bill Crowder, and Daniel Ryan Day. Glad you're able to be part of this study called A Song of a Fearful Heart. Thanks, Bill, for leading us through that. Now, Discover the Word is a small group Bible study from Our Daily Bread Ministries in Grand Rapids, Michigan, in which we invite you to walk with us through topics and passages that inform the way we read the scriptures, and challenge us as we live our lives as followers of Christ, and always point us to discover Jesus in the pages of the Bible. Well, it is a privilege to be able to study the scriptures with you this way, and I hope you know that wherever and whenever you listen, we always have a seat at the table for you. Over the years, we've heard from thousands of grateful listeners who at some point in their day or some point in their week, pull up a chair and discover the word with the group. We and so many of you have found it life and perspective shaping to study together like this. And we want you to know that these conversations are made possible because of friends like you. So please consider giving a financial gift in support of this ministry. Just go to discovertheword.org and click on the Donate tab. Well, thanks for listening. I'm Brian Hedinga. Discover the Word is provided by Our Daily Bread Ministries. Thank you.